Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When a neighborly nurse in Washington State is found dead in a fiery inferno. She had pretty substantial burning on her back and her legs. It was really, really bad. Residents in her apartment complex are scared stiff to learn the blaze is a cover-up for murder. Just scared people. And it scared them to the point where they wanted out, out of the neighborhood. But soon, investigators' worst fears are realized when this brutal killer strikes again. The killer was not only becoming more sadistic, he was also getting smarter. Detectives are stumped as to who could do such a thing. Doing all this work and kept circling back to emptiness until a tip from behind bars leads police to a vicious killer hiding in their own backyard. Clearly this is someone who's out of their mind. This is a psycho, this is a serial killer. Why would he stop? How well do you know your neighbors? What lies behind the white picket fences? Nestled between the skyscrapers of Seattle and the rocky coastlines of the Pacific, lies the quiet town of Shoreline, Washington. Rooted in the classic go-with-the-flow attitude of the Pacific Northwest, things here are pretty mellow. Shoreline is very leafy, very mossy, really a treat to live in a nice, quiet existence. But still, you're close enough to the spark of Seattle. And not even the perpetual drizzle can extinguish the spark of these folks. They bike, they run, uh, they get into the outdoors. Whatever they do for fun, they often do it in sideways rain and do it cheerfully. When Renee Powell moves to Shoreline in 1993, a little cheer is just what she's looking for. And if anyone understands Renee's itch to get out of her hometown of St. Louis, it's her favorite aunt, Jean Clark. She wasn't comfortable in a very old-fashioned state community. So she was escaping from her old life. After a short sailing vacation to the Pacific Northwest, Renee knows she's finally found her place. 
she went out to visit her friend out there. And that's when she was like, ooh, I've landed. This is where I'm supposed to be. She was free. So Renee packs up the car and drives out west. And for the first time in her 43 years, finally starts living. Boy, that took guts to do it. Took guts. She didn't have any money, but she changed. She blossomed. I was so happy for her. After taking a nursing position at a nearby hospital, things are starting to look up for this late bloomer. But in February of 1995, Renee's promising future goes up in smoke. Fire investigator Craig Muller of the King County Sheriff's Office is a no-nonsense kind of guy. 09023. We've got a job to do. We're there to determine the cause of the fire. You just do what you're trained to do. And on February 24th, just before midnight, Muller's training is about to kick in. When dispatch is flooded with calls about an apartment fire on Northeast 197th Place. The way radio explained it was I had a possible victim. I am trying not to arrive on scene with any preconceived thoughts. You want to go into the scene without trying to figure out what happened before you got there. 501, I'm on location. Investigator Muller races to the scene and finds the usually quiet cul-de-sac overcome with chaos. Flames are shooting out of 43-year-old Renee Powell's ground floor unit. It was a significant fire, so you've got various neighbors out and about uh, just watching. Lucky lose, gawking. With the blaze now tearing through the four-unit apartment building, firefighters waste no effort squelching the flames. An hour later, it's safe to enter, and Muller is one of the first inside. As soon as he sets foot into Renee Powell's living room, he notices something suspicious. A Duraflame log had been placed on the hearth, and clothing had been laid over it from the fireplace up to the arm of a couch and ignited. To Muller, the trail of clothing from the fireplace to the sofa is a clear sign of arson. The fire seems to be contained within the living room. That is until Muller reaches the back bedroom and discovers evidence of a second blaze. The walls were burned, the ceiling was burned, the joists, the ceiling joists over the room were partially burned through. The two fires are completely disconnected, separated by a hallway, which is all too suspicious to Muller. You have two separate fires in a, in a structure like that that are non-communicating. It's just, it's not right. You don't see that in an accidental fire. But you do see it in a deliberate one. It looks like someone torched Renee's apartment. But why? And where is she? The moment Muller steps inside the bedroom, he has an answer. Renee's body is right there, on the floor under some charred debris. She's stretched out face down, and she's got ordinary combustibles around her body and in between her legs. The area around the victim was burned. With debris covering part of her body, Muller can't tell exactly what killed her, the fire or something else. One thing's for sure, somebody wanted Renee Powell good and dead. So Muller makes a call to bring in the best and brightest to investigate, the King County Homicide Unit. Sergeant James Knauss of the King County Sheriff's Office is a jack-of-all-trades when it comes to police work. From arson to burglaries to homicides, he's seen it all. And when I left the fire investigation unit, 
I moved into the homicide unit and brought with me that unique skill. A skill that makes walking into the Powell crime scene feel like a case of deja vu. And when he arrives at Renee's place, Knauss knows he's got a tough job ahead of him. It looks like the fire's destroyed all your evidence, but really it's there. You just have to slowly remove the fire debris to find the evidence of a homicide. Investigators find the sure signs of foul play when they remove the debris covering Renee's body. It's a frightening sight. Renee's stark naked, bound, and gagged. For Sergeant Knauss, it's clear what he's dealing with one sick individual. You can't get any worse. I mean, you've done everything. You've assaulted her, you've murdered her, you've set her house on fire. There's absolutely nothing more evil. And a closer look at the body gives Knauss a pretty good idea of the cause of death. There's one obvious stab wound to Renee's abdomen. And when investigators find a steak knife out of place on a hallway shelf, it looks like they found their likely murder weapon. It looks like one of the knives from the butcher block in the kitchen. And it appeared that the knife made the stab wounds. With a possible murder weapon, a brutalized victim, and a burnt-out crime scene, detectives are left with more questions than answers. But they know one thing for certain. Renee was caught off guard by her attacker. In the chair just inside the doorway was freshly laundered clothing that hadn't yet been folded. It looked like maybe she had started to fold clothes, but had got interrupted. With no signs of forced entry, Knauss is quick to put two and two together. Our theory was is she had left the door open when she went to do laundry. Someone had slipped in. When she came back in, put her laundry down, and was accosted. But why? Chances are she wasn't murdered for her freshly folded laundry. And when investigators discover a VCR missing from the apartment, burglary seems a more likely option. Or does it? Very rarely do you see where the intended crime of burglary turns into an assault and a murder and a fire. The VCR would have been just a souvenir to remember the victim by. A cold-hearted killer with a penchant for souvenirs. Sounds like detectives are going to have a mighty hard time finding someone who fits the bill. Was he a friend? Was he in the apartment? Is he known to the victim? With little to go on, police are at a loss. And they get even hotter under the collar when a second fire breaks out. It seems Renee's killer is just getting started. Just absolutely know in your heart that these are connected and you're just hoping they're not, but you know they are. Just outside of Seattle, Saturdays in the quiet town of Shoreline are often spent sipping a cup of joe with the morning paper. But the day after the brutal murder of 43-year-old Renee Powell, the coffee sits cold in its pot while residents try to come to grips with the front-page news. The nature of the crime, the way it was committed, just scared people. And it scared them to the point where they wanted out, out of the neighborhood. But just as residents are looking to get out, King 5 TV reporter Alan Schoffler is moving in. He's been covering the Seattle area for 19 years. And for him, the Powell case literally hits a little too close to home. As that investigation was going on, my wife and I were moving about a mile, mile and a half away. And that was a little creepy. While fear runs rampant in Renee's hometown, the heartbreaking news travels over 3,000 miles to Renee's Aunt Jean in Florida. 
I got a phone call, and it was my sister, and she was just beside herself. It was horrible, horrible phone conversation. It just it hurts too bad. You can't cry. Someone else who just can't shake the weight of this case is King County lead investigator, Sergeant James Knaus. And at this point, he's got a laundry list of questions. We're wondering why. Why this person? Why this apartment unit? So we're going to do the best possible job we can to find out who did this and bring justice. With so much on Knaus's plate, there's someone a little further up the totem pole who might be able to offer a fresh take on the case. Senior Deputy Prosecuting Attorney Don Raz. He's got a passion for the job and an eye on justice. You look at the scene, you consider it evidence, you start thinking of who did this and how can I convict them and put them away where they can't do this to anyone ever again. Well, before he can get a conviction in the Powell case, he's gonna need a suspect. And before he can get a suspect, he's gonna need some evidence. And police hope the results of Renee's autopsy will give them just that. Renee had suffered two stab wounds, one to her right front abdomen, one to her left back. And that's exactly what the medical examiner says killed Renee. With no soot in her lungs, the ME believes she died from the stab wounds before the fire was set. The fire was solely an attempt to destroy the body and the evidence. This person obviously didn't want to get caught. He wanted to do whatever he could to cover up his tracks. Luckily for investigators, Renee's killer slipped up big time. Despite setting two fires in the apartment, including one between Renee's legs, a little something called DNA survived. This appeared to be a sexual assault. So the ME did some vaginal swabs, and we were extremely happy we had come back with some kind of DNA evidence. But finding a suspect to match it to is a whole other issue. As any good gumshoe knows, when a woman is raped and murdered, usually a boyfriend or husband is to blame. But not in this case. Renee's love life didn't exactly include men. She said for 42 years she, she dated men. She said, I played the straight, and it just never was for me. I never met Mr. Wright because there was no man right for me. That's because for the first 42 of Renee's 43 years, she lived as a closeted lesbian. And it wasn't until she moved to Shoreline that she finally felt free enough to live out in the open. We knew that Renee Powell was a lesbian and didn't have any boyfriends, didn't have anyone she was dating. But just because Renee was gay doesn't mean a male friend or acquaintance doesn't hold a grudge against her. Because of the condition of Renee's body, we considered that it was somebody that she had known before who was extremely angry with her and wanted her to suffer. However, investigators learned from family and friends that Renee worked as a nurse at a local care center and pretty much kept to herself. According to them, Renee didn't have an enemy in the world. Renee had recently taken a job at a local hospital and didn't seem to have any one real specific interest other than she worked hard. Renee appeared to be liked by everybody. With little to go on, police aren't sure what move to make next. But exactly one month after Renee's murder, that decision is made for them. Around one in the morning on March 26th, investigators find themselves back at Renee's apartment complex, investigating another fire, just 100 feet from her door. You, you can't describe the feeling. It's like, can't be. 
It's just going through your mind. What was it we overlooked? You're second-guessing yourself. There's an eerie familiarity to the scene, and Canals can't help but wonder if the shoreline arsonist has struck again. This apartment was more fire damaged than Renee's, but similar, very similar. You got the smell, you got the same neighbor standing on the corner. And according to the neighbors, the apartment belongs to 54-year-old Barbara Walsh, a receptionist at a nearby hospital. And her story sounds a lot like Renee Powell's. They were both single women who lived alone. They lived in an apartment on the first floor of the building. They worked in the medical profession. They were in their 40s and 50s. And the similarities don't end with their personal lives. Their deaths share some uncanny likenesses as well. Barbara was on the floor in front of the bed, and she's laying face down just like Renee. And she's bound as well. She's got clothing stuffed into her mouth, and her bra has been pushed up. And right next to her head is a wicker basket full of clothes. Much like the combustibles that were ignited between Renee's legs, the basket near Barbara's head had been set ablaze. Once again, it seems this killer has gone above and beyond to destroy his victim. While the similarities are stacking up, it's the differences that make police think they are dealing with more than they bargained for. At Renee's scene, there were two fire starts. At Barbara's scene, the fire sets increased. It went from two to seven. The killer was trying to make certain that the apartment was fully engulfed. When investigators find a discarded condom wrapper in Barbara's bathroom, they realize just what kind of criminal they have on their hands. We know we have a condom that was used, so now we know that there's more likely a sexual assault. The killer not only was becoming more sadistic, he was also getting smarter. He took additional measures to make sure that his semen is not found at the scene. But even smart guys make mistakes. And detectives believe the killer may have inadvertently left a discarded hand towel on the bathroom counter. That's not Barbara. She lived alone and kept her home beautifully neat and clean. And now all of a sudden you got this towel thrown on the counter. Detectives have a feeling her killer had his hands on it. So police submit the towel into evidence, just in case. And that's not the only thing investigators also notice in Barbara's apartment. Her television is gone. And with Renee's missing VCR in mind, the striking similarities are all adding up to one thing. The shoreline killer has struck again. All this tells me that we're dealing with the same person, doing the same motions, the same activities. Especially when neighbors tell investigators that Barbara had been seen doing laundry that evening. We suspected that he would have done some type of surveillance of these two women to know their comings and goings. And when he saw Renee and Barbara leaving their doors unlocked while checking their laundry, the killer slipped in undetected. He was improving as a killer. And you can't help but come to the conclusion that we might have a serial killer on our hands. Clearly, the killer is quite familiar with the neighborhood. There's a good chance he lives nearby, hiding out in plain sight. For Alan Schaffler, the idea of a murderer in his own backyard is unsettling, to say the least. It just didn't make any sense that somebody from outside that area had picked that area to drive to and commit these murders in. It made much more sense that whoever was doing this was local. He lived there. 
he was in the neighborhood, and people were freaked. To put the community at ease, investigators go door to door to track down a killer. We're going to make sure that we absolutely know everything about everyone, everywhere around this neighborhood. And it doesn't take long before police knock on the door of a rather suspicious character. And what he has to say will turn up the heat on the shoreline murders. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Typically, the folks of Shoreline, Washington, are happy to lend a cup of sugar whenever they can. But when Renee Powell and Barbara Walsh are murdered within one month of one another, the people of this quiet cul-de-sac aren't feeling so neighborly. What was clear is that it was somebody who lived there who was doing this. Neighbors must have known that the person who'd committed these things was right there or right there, that they were brushing elbows with him in the laundry room, that they were waiting while he pulled out of his parking spot. And while everyone is wondering who and why, the more pressing question for local reporter Alan Schaffler is when. When will this killer strike again? Why would someone who had done this so thoroughly and repeated the behavior so exactly, why would they stop? Clearly this is someone who's out of their mind. This is a psycho, this is a serial killer. Convinced this killer is right under his nose, Lead investigator Sergeant James Knaus goes back through the neighborhood with a fine-tooth comb. And when police come to a stretch of houses just one block from the two crime scenes, 
they run into a rather suspicious situation. As they're going door to door, one of the doors they knocked on was answered by a lady who said she was home alone. But the detective standing in the doorway could see a person sitting in the chair inside the living room. When the detective asks to speak to the man of the house, the young woman insists that she's alone. Either she has a few screws loose or something to hide. There gets to be this argument over whether or not there's actually somebody sitting in a chair 15 feet inside of the door. It was extremely unusual. After a few minutes of he said, she said, a young slender man comes to the door. The perturbed detective fires off a smidge of attitude and gets a little lip in return. Fellow goes, I don't know anything. Get the hell out of my house. The detective, not truly believing that, presses forward. After a bit of back and forth, things cool down. And when the detective asks for ID, the man obliges and tells him his name is Robert White. Aside from his poor manners, White has done nothing wrong. It's certainly understandable that neighbors are a little on edge these days. Nobody likes a serial killer in the neighborhood, but that was absolutely the sense in that area of what was happening. And that was really, really scary. And what's even scarier is that the clock is ticking. Everyone in town knows Barbara Walsh was murdered exactly 30 days after Renee Powell. And as the 60-day mark approaches, folks wonder if another murder is imminent. You just had a sense that it wasn't over, that it hadn't ended. And that's a horrible cloud to live under. Luckily, when two months come and go without incident, investigators breathe a sigh of relief. Maybe Lady Luck is finally on their side. And sure enough, an interesting tip comes into the station that gives police a likely suspect indeed, a 22-year-old local troublemaker named Anthony Baskin. I'd received a tip that Anthony was a person that we should look at in Shoreline. He lived fairly close to the homicide scenes and probably less than a mile and a half away. And it's not just his proximity to the crime scenes that concerns Knaus. It seems Baskin has recently spent a stint in jail for vandalism and harassment. And while he passed the time behind bars, he fancied himself a bit of a wordsmith. He had been writing poetry and had a different view on life. In his poetry, he talks about uh, stabbing women and having sex with women as they die and some really bizarre writings. And it seems this young Lothario has a thing for mature women. He was very explicit in all of his uh, discussions about his encounter with older women. So as we read through his poems, we became concerned that maybe he was talking about actual contact he had had with the two, Renee and Barbara. This guy may have some deranged fetishes, but it's tough to say if he's a murderer just yet. Since getting out of jail a few months ago, he's been squeaky clean. Anthony didn't really like the idea of being interviewed. He just basically said he's not involved, and that's where it went. When Anthony refuses to come in and speak to police on the record, Knaus gets a better idea. After all, he doesn't need Baskin's cooperation, just his DNA. So when they learn Baskin has an impending court date, police set up surveillance outside. And before long, Baskin comes out for a smoke, and detectives take their chance. When he was done smoking his cigarette, he threw a cigarette on the ground. 
and they conveniently kept track of that cigarette and collected it for DNA samples. But it's a lot of legwork for nothing. His DNA doesn't match the semen found in Rene. With their first promising suspect a washout, it's tough not to lose hope. But as any good Northwesterner knows, when the going gets tough, the tough get paddling. Just ways to separate yourself from that. And one of the ways is to get out of the work environment and to go do something different. While downtime may be a rarity these days, when it does come along, Sergeant Knaus can be found making waves on the water. Kayaking, it's, you can feel the world. I mean, the waves, the motion, the stillness of the water, the roughness of the water, it's always different. And it's a welcome distraction from his caseload. When it comes to the shoreline murders, Knaus has a long upstream paddle ahead of him. So several months after Renee's murder, he decides to cast a wider net and turns to Washington State's HITS program, the Homicide Incident Tracking System. We would enter detailed information about every homicide so that we could do a nationwide search for very specific things in a case. With the details of the Powell and Walsh cases in the database, police search nationwide for similar cases with hopes of tracking down their killer, and they soon get some interesting results. A homicide that took place nearly 10 months after Renee's murder, clear across the country in Tifton, Georgia. The woman had been bound and gagged. It was also determined that she had stab wounds. With the similarities stacking up, investigators wonder, has the shoreline arsonist struck again, over 2,800 miles away? We definitely had to get down there and find him because I absolutely thought he was going to strike again. More than nine months after the tragic murders of Renee Powell and Barbara Walsh, residents of Shoreline, Washington, are ready to ring in the new year and put the killing behind them. But with a predator still on the loose, the prosecutor's office isn't exactly in the mood to celebrate just yet. Senior Deputy Prosecuting Attorney Don Raz's New Year's resolution is not to put on a party hat until the killer is behind bars and the community is at ease. When you're being stalked by a stranger, anybody can be a target. And here, because it was women and single women, the fear in the community was palpable. It looks like investigators may be close to squelching that fear when they get a white-hot lead from clear across the country in Tifton, Georgia. Another arson case with some glaring similarities to the Shoreline case. A woman who lived alone had been in the act of doing laundry in the laundry room attached to her home. Just like Renee and Barbara, it seems this victim, a 40-year-old single woman, was caught off guard while folding her delicates. Not only that, she too is found bound, raped, and stabbed in her burnt-out home. And when King County police learn that the victim's television is nowhere to be found, it's all adding up to one thing. The similarities were just incredibly striking. So it was really a, a double inquiry to determine whether the same person who committed the Georgia homicide committed Renee and Barbara's homicides. Lucky for King County investigators, Tifton police already have a suspect on their radar, a down-on-his-luck drifter named Eddie Wooten. 
And Eddie was a transient. He had been staying at a mission nearby the home of their victim. And then he had kind of just disappeared soon after the murder took place. Not only did Eddie cut and run a few days after the murder, when he checked into the mission shelter, he showed a Washington state driver's license. And that's a coincidence King County investigators just can't overlook. When police run Eddie's name, they find a lengthy record of vehicle thefts and his last known address at the time of the Shoreline murders. He had been living in Everett, which is a city approximately 20 miles north of the apartment complex where Barbara and Renee died. 20 miles north of the murders is just a little too close for comfort for lead detective Sergeant James Knauss. We wanted to find him. We wanted to have the opportunity to talk to him and see how he fit into our case. We can't afford not to connect the dots if there's dots that need to be connected. There's only one problem. No one has seen Eddie Wooten since he disappeared from a Georgia shelter over a week ago. So investigators pay a visit to Eddie's family nearby. He had family locally and had been in town at the time of our fires. According to Eddie's family, he disappeared from the area around the time of Renee and Barbara's murders. Seems like Eddie has a knack for skipping town when women turn up dead. So we started looking for him, and his wife helped us put a nationwide missing persons report out. It doesn't take long before Eddie turns up all the way down in Brownwood, Texas. Turns out, when Eddie tried to check into a homeless shelter, a staff person ran his name and noticed his missing persons report. With Eddie cozy on a cot in Texas, King County investigators hop a jet down south to have a little chat with Mr. Wooten. While he denies having anything to do with the Georgia case or the Shoreline murders, what Eddie does say offers up more questions than answers. He really didn't have a specific alibi that he could point to for the time when Barbara and Renee's murders took place. And any good investigator knows no alibi often means up to no good. According to Eddie, he simply got tired of his wife and two kids, so he left them behind in Washington. He was just kind of a drifter. He kind of bumped around uh, the United States. He was suspicious. At this point, Eddie couldn't be eliminated from anything. He was a very valid suspect in our case. With no solid alibi, police waste no time cutting to the chase and ask Wooten for a DNA sample. A sample that, to the disappointment of investigators, is not a match to Renee's killer or the Georgia killer. We're all very anxious to find the right person, but at the same time, we certainly didn't want the wrong person identified. Seems like old Eddie just has a knack for being in the wrong place at the wrong time. It is hugely frustrating. When we work hard on things, we all like to get a result. And just time and time again, but there was a lot of disappointment in this case. And as months turn into years, the Powell and Walsh cases get icier than the snow-covered summit of Mount Rainier. The case is getting older and older and older. And as a homicide investigator, you know that further you get from the scene, the less likely you're going to end up with a, a good arrest. But just when it's starting to look like these murders are going to end up in the basement atop a stack of cold cases, detectives are handed a gift. On October 29, 1996, over a year and a half after Renee's and Barbara's murders, 
a golden tip comes into the King County Sheriff's Office. I get a phone call from an anonymous person who says that she has information on the homicide case. She tells me that she knows this lady who's in jail and is upset that she's in jail while her boyfriend who killed two people is out free. And the two people she says he killed are Renee Powell and Barbara Walsh. The caller goes on to tell Kanaus the woman's name is Shauna Tyner, and she's currently serving time right under their noses in the King County Jail. Detective Kanaus ran Shauna's name and found that Shauna had criminal charges against her, wherein the boyfriend was the victim of alleged assault. It seems Shauna wasn't too happy when her boyfriend took up with a new woman. And when she took her anger out on him, he took out charges against her. It certainly was a concern that this was a jilted girlfriend thinking, here's an opportunity, I heard about these murders, I am so upset that he left me for her that I'm going to get him in trouble. But when investigators sit down with her, what she says quickly grabs their full attention. She and her ex lived right across the street from Renee and Barbara. And that's not all. She told the detectives that the evening of both of the fires, that her boyfriend had just gone out somewhere. She told them that he brought property back in to their house. When she tells them that her boyfriend brought home VCRs and a television, they aren't exactly impressed. After all, that information was released to the public months ago. However, Shauna goes on to tell them that he also took seemingly worthless items, like trinkets and knickknacks, which is exactly what makes Sergeant Kanaus believe that Shauna Tyner just might be onto something. This information from Shauna was, was precise, it was clear, it was exact. And it's those kind of details that made us know that what she was telling us was not only true, but it was very important to the solving of this case. But there is one detail in particular that police are interested in. Who is this mystery ex-boyfriend? And what is his connection to Renee and Barbara? Doing all this work and uh, coming up with zeros. So you know in your heart that somewhere in your case is the answer, and you're wondering what it is you've missed. Well, police are about to get a punch to the gut when they realize they've met Shauna's boyfriend once before. Over 18 months have passed since the murders of Renee Powell and Barbara Walsh, and police finally have some good news. When a jilted ex-girlfriend comes forward with some filthy dirt on her old flame, investigators suddenly have a red-hot lead. We're excited that we have a break, but in the same respect, we're on pins and needles to figure out, okay, what is the next step that we can do that will get us more evidence? Well, it looks like their star witness, Shauna Tyner, might be able to help with that. Behind bars for smacking around her ex, Shauna spilled the beans to police that it was her old beau who committed the Shoreline murders. And according to her, she can prove it. While the boyfriend may be out of her life, the items he brought home the nights of the murders are still in her apartment. So lead detective Sergeant James Kanaus takes Shauna back to her place and demands proof. When we went to her house, 
she was able to give us the porcelain dolls, the vase, the wicker baskets, the coat, and other property that she said came from both Renee and Barbara's house. Problem is, there's no telling for sure that these things actually came from the victims' homes. But there are some people that might be able to help. Renee's family is quick to identify the raincoat recovered from Shauna's place. They immediately said that Renee, when she moved to Seattle, had heard about all the rain and immediately had gone out and got a very heavy, very covering gray raincoat, which was totally consistent with the coat that had been recovered from Shauna. With no doubt that the stolen items came from Renee's and Barbara's homes, police have one more job left to do, track down Shauna's boyfriend, a 25-year-old small-time drug dealer named Robert Parker. But according to Shauna, police will be hard set to find any dirt on Parker in King County. Parker often used a fake name and a fake ID. Shauna told us that he had used an alias name. He was always booked under the name Robert White in the King County Jail. Robert White. It's a name that's crossed this case once before. During a routine canvas the day after Barbara's murder, a King County detective got into a spat with one of Barbara's nearby neighbors, an uncooperative Robert White. Only lead investigators never found out about it. It was realized at that time that there hadn't been a typed report forwarded on to the lead detectives. But there wasn't anything that uh, we could have done with him. We couldn't have even brought him in for questioning. He would have had every right to refuse. When the detective who spoke with White that day is shown a photo of Robert Parker, he confirms they are one and the same. Parker may have slipped through their fingers once before, but it's not going to happen again. So they waste no time tracking him down at work at a local toy store. We waited for him to get off the bus, and uh, we arrested him at work. We told him why we had arrested him, and he immediately denied any involvement. All kinds of conversation took place. He came across as a soft-spoken person that didn't seem to fit the character of who I was looking for. But all the evidence says otherwise. He may deny it, but there's one thing that never lies. DNA. Well, his is about to do all the talking. He's a match to the seminal DNA found in Renee's body. We're excited for our case. When the DNA matched, we're extremely pleased. Only there's a problem. They may have a slam dunk in Renee's case, but with no DNA evidence found at Barbara's crime scene, tying Parker to both murders is going to be tough to prove. So investigators return to the evidence and they have a pretty good idea where to look. Thanks to Shauna Tyner, police have some interesting insight into Robert Parker's sexual habits. After he had sex, he was known to go into the bathroom, clean himself off using the bathroom towels, and then quite inconsiderately just leaving them thrown about the bathroom. While processing Barbara's apartment, Knauss was quick to notice a white hand towel sloppily discarded on the bathroom counter. While the towel was singed in the fire, some amazing evidence survived. Two hairs belonging to none other than Robert Parker. Not only do the signatures of the crime scene match, right down to the fire sets, to the assaults, to the homicide, but now we had DNA that linked the two as well. With the evidence mounting against him, 
Robert Parker doesn't stand a chance in court. On February 25, 1999, almost four years to the date of Renee's murder, Parker is found guilty of two counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to two life terms without the possibility of parole. For Renee's aunt, Jean Clark, it's the best news she's heard in years. But there's no real relief from the sorrow that you feel within yourself. Just days. You're just glad he's off the street, he won't hurt anybody else. While the question who killed Renee and Barbara has been answered, the question why remains. I think Robert had probably had an event with Shauna where he left her apartment upset and he took out his anger on these two ladies. Extreme anger that pushed Parker to snap and go from being a petty criminal to a savage killer. Based on the evidence and witness testimony, investigators think they now know what happened on that cold February night of Renee Powell's murder. Parker had been watching her for some time, recognized that she lived alone. She was going back and forth between the laundry room and her apartment and left her door open. And as Renee sets down the laundry basket, Parker rushes her at the door. Once he was inside the apartment, gagged her, tied her up, tortured her, raped her. And takes a knife from her own kitchen and stabs her to death. After stealing items from her home and bringing them back to his girlfriend, he returns to cover his tracks. Realizing that he needed to cover evidence, he set a couple of fire starts, and one directly in the spot where he had known he had left something that could be traced back to him. Only it doesn't work. Thankfully, Parker's DNA survives. A month later, found that he liked it, found that he had gotten away with it. He then went after Barbara. And King County investigators go after him, putting a killer behind bars for the rest of his life. For Renee's aunt, Jean Clark, the wound of her loss will never heal. But she finds comfort in knowing that Renee, despite living most of her life in the closet, spent her final days carefree with the wind in her hair. Renee was a brilliant, caring, compassionate, wonderful human being, but she wasn't allowed to be who she wanted to be or was. Now she's free, she's a bird, she's, she's fine. For the folks of Shoreline, the lives of Renee Powell and Barbara Walsh leave behind a haunting lesson. It's often not the unknown stranger lurking in the shadows that you need to be afraid of, but the neighbor walking outside your window. It was a shock to the neighborhood, but I think people were able to accept that and just move ahead. It's what we all have to do. You have to move on.